This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Thursday, November 2nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today I want to talk about two political outcomes that I want to cheer from my gut, but I can't from my brain because of principle. So yesterday, George Santos survived an expulsion vote. Speaking on behalf of Santos, Miss Katara Revanche. Oh, sorry, that is the drag name of George Santos. We were each elected to Congress because our constituents supported our pledge to uphold the Constitution, protect their liberties, and put their, and put their needs first. We swore with our palms to the Bible to do so. This expulsion, unfortunately, is politically motivated by some members within this body. They believe that by attempting to expel me, they will garner political points, capitalize on political fundraising, and receive congratulations from those who do not approve of my voting record. During this Congress, we have seen the world set aflame, our allies attacked, recession looming, crime out of control, an unprecedented border crisis and the diminishment of American power, prestige, and respect at home and around the globe. Hmm. On the other hand, here's Santos' neighbor, Republican Representative Anthony D'Esposito of Long Island. Since he was elected in November of 2022, we have learned about countless lies, deceptions, and 23 charges against Mr. Santos. It is in the best interest of the constituents of New York 3 and all Americans that he is expelled from the House of Representatives. The lies, the deceptions about September 11 terrorist attacks, his education, his work history, his faith, the fact that he was Jew-ish, claiming that his grandparents escaped the horrors of the Holocaust. Prejan Paisano, but I would have to vote against expulsion. It is true that almost all of the New York Republican delegation voted to expel Santos, and I don't begrudge them that effort. 31 Democrats joined with almost all the Republicans, though, to keep him in place. The Republicans did it because they don't want to know, they don't want to hear. The Democrats did it out of principle, and that principle is mine too. The logic is that the standard for expulsion can't be accusations. It can't be demonstrable lies. It can't even be indictment. Without a criminal conviction, simply having lied, or it wasn't simple in his case, grandly having lied to gain office, that is a charge that to one degree or another, everyone in Congress could face. And given the nasty partisanship of the moment, they probably would face it if you allowed Santos to get kicked in the rear. And the same is true 
for the Colorado hearing into Donald Trump's eligibility to run for president. Now, you heard on the show, I've interviewed professors who think the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment should apply to Trump. He should be disqualified. But a couple of things to note. One, Trump wasn't even charged with insurrection. He could have been. Jack Smith thought other charges could stick, but not that one. It's important for the voters of America not to be denied their choice. I wouldn't call the insurrection charge a pretext. Much of its logic could be said to apply to Trump, but you got to weigh that against the harms of telling voters, almost, well, most of the voters of one of our two parties, they literally can't vote for their favorite candidate, their runaway clear choice. That is too destabilizing and too anti-democratic. There may be other considerations in bringing the legal challenge, which has failed in every state that it's been tried. It gives me no pleasure to say that Trump should survive this measure, but he should. So many of his actions have been disqualifying on grounds of ethics, judgment, and competence, but not because of the 14th Amendment. On the show today, it's not just the flesh-footed Shearwater. Lots of bird names are changing. That guy, because... Well, whose flesh is he colored? Some other guys because they're named after people we don't like, or in many cases, just people who were people, and that's not going to happen henceforth. But first, speaking of principle, Adam Kinzinger stuck to his, cost him his job. The former Republican representative followed his moral compass, which pointed him away from the GOP after January 6th. So, No more Kinzinger in Congress, but Kinzinger on the gist in a recording that was not surreptitiously done, but was not done to our normal fine standards. It's fine. It's better than, you know, 64% of podcasts. I hope, but the, the content is fantastic. I hope you like it. Adam Kinzinger up next. Adam Kinzinger served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2011 to 2023. He represented Illinois' 11th and 16th congressional districts. He didn't move. They did. And during his tenure, he served on the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. But I need you to know that he did so much between those two bookends. He's been doing a lot afterwards, which we'll talk to him about. He did a lot before including once used the epitaph son of a biscuit. It was a formative (laughs) utterance in his development. And it's all in his new memoir, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. Congressman Kinzinger, welcome to The Gist. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Son of a biscuit. Son of a biscuit, which... So you grow up independent fundamental Baptist where they don't say bad words and they count that as a bad word, where if it's 95 degrees, you can't wear shorts to go to an amusement park. And where do you put the uh, the IFBs? Because you do so in the book on a scale of one to 10, one being just your... um, I don't know, the very, a Christian maybe goes to church on Christmas and doesn't think too much about it, and a 10 or a 12 being a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I put it right about an eight, probably about an eight. So that's the, uh, it's the, I would call it a mild cult, a mild cult, you know, like not a, not an intense super cult, but mild. And, uh, you know, it was like the, one of the few, no drinking, no dancing, no, you know, rock music, no anything you can think of kind of churches. And, uh, Yeah, it was no fun. I mean, it was no fun. That's for sure. (laughs) But do you think that being a member of this mild cult 
made you more open to differences with others or more closed? Because I guess the people say, well, of course, he's more closed. They don't believe in these things. But there's an argument that, in fact, you were more open because whenever you'd interact with someone who wasn't in this religious cult, sect, uh, group, you'd know that there'd be a, a chasm to overcome because they might not understand the uh, world in the way you do. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I didn't even, I almost never even told people I was an IFB until even fairly recently, Independent Fundamental Baptist. So it's called IFB. Um, because to me, it was kind of like, it was a little bit of an embarrassment. I'm like, people won't understand it. And, uh, and there's this real kind of out of IFB movement now of people that have, you know, kind of grew up that way that now talk about it. And it, and it really brought home like kind of some of the impact it has on you. I would say generally, you know, my family was not like strict adherence to it. We went to the church and there were a lot of things that we didn't really necessarily think were wrong that they did, but we didn't follow. I would say at the beginning of my life, it, it made life and, and made people much more black and white. There's just good and evil. There's no in between, right? And, and you're more definitive. But as I grew up and kind of understood that, okay, maybe the viewpoints I was I was kind of given were wrong or a little too strict and that kind of stuff, I think it ultimately has made me more open to the fact that, hey, you know, if somebody feels like they don't, I don't know, let's take like in the political sense, like they don't really like America, right? That's what they, anybody thinks of the other side. The truth is I've come to realize that maybe the things I feel about somebody aren't true. And maybe the person just sees a very different way of life than me. And so I think it's actually made me more open as an adult, you know, probably a little more strict, obviously, as a kid and, and, and more black and white, and more rebellious, too. I was a pretty rebellious kid because that's what happens when you start putting rules on everybody. They want to break them. Well, you went to public school, played Little League with kids not in this church, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. And I, I associate, but I didn't even tell a lot of those kids I went to IFB, but the IFB church did have its own school. I just was a sinner and didn't go. So when you would meet these other kids, you are, I mean, most, this is true of most politicians, you're an extrovert, you want people to like you. You know, you had, you developed uh, strategies to ingratiate yourself. And I just wonder if that, if we see some of that, I mean, this, I came away from this from reading the book and your memoir, there were many strategies of integration in being a up and coming Republican and being uh, at least not a member of the Tea Party, but someone who the Tea Party maybe didn't hate as much as other Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, the, the, it's there's definitely some strategies in learning how to kind of, I don't know, you have to learn how to pretend you belong. You have to learn how to belong. You have to be part of a team, right? You have to sometimes swallow things you don't like. You know, an IFB church is the example. You got to you know, sometimes just at least pretend to be okay with some of these things. And so you know, I think it all works together. And it also can like hold you back from finding your voice sometimes because mm -hmm. um, you learn that when you stand out, it's not a good place to be, particularly in, you know, like a cultish environment. And that's actually what the GOP is now. So I think it's probably prepared me exactly for the moment that the Republican Party's in. And, uh, you know, there's just a point at which you you have to break with bad thinking whether from a spiritual perspective, and eventually you have to break from bad thinking on a political perspective. You have to just think for yourself. So I think most of my listeners know your story, generally one of two Republicans, uh, along with Liz Cheney, on that January 6th panel. And if I ask you, and uh, I, I know the book does grapple with this, what made you different? What made you change? If I asked many former members of your caucus, even ones you agree with, you know, to define themselves, they use many of the words that you would use, patriotic, yeah. uh, religious, due to bound. I don't know that Dan Crenshaw would say any of the different things. And I don't know if you know or like Dan or how sincere his public uh, persona is. Right. But what do you dig down, dig deeper? What about that 
patriotism, sense of duty, right and wrong. You know, what specifically, not a word, but um, some aspect of your personality or upbringing do you think explains the difference? I don't know, except to say, and maybe this is actually the answer. I, I think of things in, I don't know if historic is the right word. Like I think of how history is going to write the present moment a lot. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think about how, you know, I'm a kid from a middle-class family. Kinzinger is not a name anybody knew until really I came along. And so I realized like there will be, and, and I don't know how many people think like this, like, in 200 years, some kid's going to whatever future Google his name, you know, that happens to be a Kinzinger and be like, oh, did you know that we had a relative that was X, Y, and Z? Just like if I was a piece of garbage and, you know, did something really bad or was a terrible person, um, you know, that's going to be a stain on that family forever as well. I think I thought in those historic terms, but there was also a really unique moment, which is I came back from Iraq in 09, and I don't know... You know, yeah, because somebody like Dan Crenshaw also came back from Iraq at one point. But yeah. in my case, I came back from Iraq in 09. And I remember specifically thinking, like, if I am going to run for a job where I'm going to ask in this job, ask people to be willing to die for this country. And that's what we do. You know, we fund the military. We vote for war and peace issues. I'm like, if I'm, if I'm going to do that, I have to be willing to give up my career for the same cause. Like, not that the sacrifice is anything even similar, but like if it comes down to a fight for the future of this country and I have to take a vote that's going to cost me my job, gosh, what a like a minor sacrifice in comparison to a 19-year-old with his whole life to live that dies for this country. And I think that stuck with me. And I, I you know, I, look, I have I had compromised and voted on things I shouldn't have voted in ways I shouldn't have voted throughout my 12 years. But it got to the point in the second impeachment and with January 6th where I just said, I cannot cross this line because... I also believe as a student of history that self-governance is actually much harder than we think it is. And as long, and you have to have like basic trust. If you don't have basic trust, like in the election system, it's impossible to govern yourself. And that's what was at threat that day. Do you remember having that specific thought in the moment or in retrospect, you said, oh, that is generally something I think, because I find that when people make, I mean, public declarations, and there's a lot of scholarship on this, and it's why 12-step programs adhere to it. But when people make some sort of public declarations, they tend to stick to it more. Uh, look, I, I consciously thought of that. And mm -hmm. I'll say, like, on election night, I can, you know, crystal clear, it's when I think Trump's tweeted something like, stop the vote, stop the count, you know, that was like the most crystal clear moment. And yes, January 6th was a break, but I was breaking with him basically that night on. And I think I just like it that now I'm not going to pretend like I knew that the party was going to end up in this terrible situation three years later because I thought everybody would wake up. But I also knew it would probably cost me my election. And at the, at the time, I, I just remember I remember thinking that specific thing, which is, look, I made this commitment. And how am I going to be? It also helped that I was a brand new father. It's like, how am I going to be able to look at my kid in his eyes someday and tell him to do the hard thing? when I was a big sissy, when it came to actually doing the hardest and most important thing I could have possibly done. You know, I've, look, I've, I've realized that many people, everybody wants to have an opportunity to do the right thing. You know, everybody, this is what you fantasize about as a kid. Very few people get it, or at least so publicly as I did. And just a fraction of those actually would do it. So I want to ask you a couple questions brought up by reading in the book about your military service. Uh, you'll probably, I don't know, you're doing a whole book tour. I don't know if it's going to anyone's going to ask you this one. Should Guam be a commonwealth? 
<laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> bring it. I say bring Guam, bring American Samoa. I landed in America Samoa once. They brought us a bunch of free sandwiches and wanted their runway fixed. So God bless American Samoa. And they have a McDonald's. Was it a mistake letting Turkey into NATO all those years ago? I that think, one you do have an opinion on. I think knowing what we know today, I still am supportive of Turkey and NATO, but I'm worried about it. Uh, the reason I'm supportive is they're the only country that straddles the Middle East and Europe. But seeing what we see today, I think it's obviously, uh, I kind of wish they weren't in there at the moment. So you were, uh, you did tanker resupplies, you flew those planes and you were based in Qatar. Now there is a guy running for the Ohio ninth district. He was the Republican nominee, RJ Majewski. Oh yeah. This against, guy. Yeah. He's, he's a run against Marcy Kaptur. He is. Well, that's what I was going to say. He's, he lost and, uh, he is now running again. And at issue is the fact that he calls himself a combat veteran because he was at the exact base that you were at during the war in Qatar. And he argues that now, according to the Pentagon, Qatar is a recognized combat zone. So I want to know, would you ever call yourself a combat veteran because of your work out of that base? Would anyone out of that base, and if they only served in that base, who call themselves a combat veteran, what reaction would they get from uh, other airmen who served only out of that base? So I will say this, if I only served out of Qatar and never had been in Iraq, um, I, I probably wouldn't call myself a combat veteran. At the same time, I'd be justified because I, I actually flew out of Qatar over and into Iraq. Okay. So I was, I you went would into be a just, combat. Yes, yes. yes. Your specific situation. Yes. So this RJ Majeski guy, he was a loadmaster and this is nothing against loadmasters. Okay. Loadmasters do important work, but they stay on the ground and load stuff onto planes. And this guy had just said before he kind of got caught in this had implied much more than just being a guy in Qatar. He had implied from what I remember that he had been in Afghanistan, that he had been on the ground and stuff like that. So when you take somebody that's trying to stretch that record, calling themselves a combat veteran, and then saying because you you were in Qatar that you're now a, co- a combat veteran, I don't know. Maybe technically you are if you flew into Iraq from Qatar, but I think just being on the ground, I think anybody else that's a veteran would say, no, don't call yourself a combat veteran. And by the way, he basically came back with the fact that he had the Global War on Terrorism Service Medal um, or yes. Expeditionary Medal, whichever it was. Everybody that serves in the military gets that medal. That does not indicate combat veteran status. You become a combat veteran if you get a combat action ribbon, if you get an air medal that's a single action air medal, or you do 20 combat air missions. And I have six air medals, so I've done 120 of these missions. And then, or if you're stationed in an actual hostile fire combat zone, you do not get hostile fire pay in Qatar. Uh, All you get is maybe some danger pay or tax free. You don't even get, I don't even think you get tax free in Qatar, but I may be wrong. You might. You flew targeting missions, right? Yeah. So I flew uh, for two years, I flew the refueler. And then for the rest of the time, including to today, I fly a reconnaissance thing where we go find bad guys and then special forces come and capture or kill them. So you're very familiar with the rules of engagement and there always has to be a civilian calculus. Is the U.S. rule of engagement that if uh, if we know a civilian is to be killed, no matter how high profile the target, if there's not an imminent threat, we the United States will not engage? I don't think, I, you know, look, I, I guess every moment's different, but I, I think we I think we can't be too averse to civilian casualties. As sad as that sounds to say, let's just be realistic. Mm-hmm. 
because look at like Gaza right now, obviously, it's a That's huge, exactly huge, what I'm thinking of. Yeah, huge in the news. So here's a big question that I would I would say to anybody that's like, oh, Israel can't or shouldn't or whatever. First off, uh, Hamas should have been spending all this money, not building underground tunnels to move material, but maybe building bomb shelters for their people that are clearly marked. Secondarily, we know they put stuff near where people are on purpose. And uh, and thirdly, you know, living in a densely populated area doesn't grant you amnesty from retaliation. If Israel was truly indiscriminately bombing Gaza, which I've heard a lot of people say, there would be 200,000 dead Gazans right now. Listen, 5,000 bombs dropped indiscriminately in a place that densely populated would destroy a lot of people. I hate that there are 8,000 dead innocent people, maybe 10. I hate that. I, I mean, I truly do. But that shows that Israel is acting as much as they can, given the, the danger they face, to minimize civilian casualties. So if you're a high-profile target and you've surrounded yourself with a busful of nuns, and that busful of nuns is accidentally killed in that strike, that is not the people striking's fault. That is the fault of the person that, t- that located themselves by a busful of nuns. Yes, and it's not a war crime, and it's not against the rules of war, but, and you write about this, there's an analogy, I think, in Iraq, in Sadr City, it was a no-go zone for U.S. military strikes, and this was not necessarily out of goodness, there was a long-term calculation that strikes in the civilian populace of Sadr City would be more trouble than it was worth, but guess what? The terrorists who the United States was hunting would then embed themselves in Sadr City knowing that they couldn't be gotten. So I I think that that's an analogy to Gaza, and what do you think the difference is? Yeah, and if you look at Fallujah, I mean, the first Fallujah, um, we basically were about to take over Fallujah. We cut a deal with uh, the terrorists at that point and left, thinking that they would leave Fallujah, they would turn on our behalf. And you had second Fallujah because that didn't work. Second Fallujah destroyed the entire city. And and the Marines, obviously, it was their most intense battle since Quezon and Vietnam. And I think it's this. Look, war sucks. And I think we have to just understand, first off, there's a reason we don't want to go to war. And there's a reason we are a, a nation that typically likes peace is because innocent people die in war. And it's an awful, awful thing. But we also can't control the attitudes of terrorists. I mean, how many times... Are we going to read more stories about what they did to babies and families and and wives in front of their babies and all this kind of stuff to realize that Hamas intends to kill and destroy? River to the Sea is basically genocide. When you're from the River to the Sea, it's genocide against the Israeli people. It's absolutely wrong, and Hamas needs to be destroyed. And lastly, I'll say this on it. Look, we didn't spare the German soldiers, the German people. We tried to do our best. You know, because they weren't Nazis, you know, oh, well, they shouldn't overthrow the Nazis because there's so many Nazis. No, we held the German people to account for the fact that, you know, there was a Nazi government. They could have fought against it. The Palestinian people can fight against Hamas. It's going to be difficult. But you kill one Hamas member, take his gun, shoot a second. You have two guns, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's a tough thing. But if they marched some of the Hamas leaders out, I think the war would end tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Is 700,000 too many people for one Congress, one member of Congress to represent? I think it is, but the the counter to that obviously is expanding the size of the House of Representatives to lower that number. And I worry about that because I do think, while 435 people, I didn't know everybody in Congress very well. 
you know, there are people I didn't know. I mean, it'd be funny. I'd be a year and a half into a term and there'd even be somebody in my own party. I'm like, who's that dude? And they're like, oh, he's been here a year. Um, and so I worry that with too many representatives, you know, you could basically make that that branch kind of impersonal. But yeah, 700,000 people is a lot of folks. I mean, it's you're getting into what some senators represent, which is pretty intense when you think about it. And yet you want Guam to be a commonwealth. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> they probably but, won't vote, though, you know? <laughs> no, no, yes. Okay, so lastly, your future, uh, Republican, Democrat. What about one of these third parties, third way, the forward party? Are they, do you have any uh, itch or inclination to check them out and kick the tires? Now, look, I love the idea of a third party. I wish it was theoretically possible to have a centrist party, right? Because I think it would drag the parties to the middle. But this is not the moment for that. Uh, I think the moment for a third party is in a not presidential year, and it starts with elections to Congress, not elections to the presidency. Uh, because right now, I truly believe that there is only one issue on the ballot. You know, um, it's not it's not any issue. It's not it's not it's not even guns. It's not even abortion. It's not even tax rates. The most controversial things. I think the one issue on the ballot is democracy this year. Do you believe in democracy, or do you do you not? And I think you have to vote accordingly. And I'm worried that a third party move is simply going to give people an excuse to not vote for Joe Biden that don't want to, but could never vote for Donald Trump. And it could make Donald Trump president. And I'll tell you what, you'll never have another party if it's uh, Donald Trump again. Adam Kinzinger is a former representative of the U.S. House of Representatives, served on the January 6th committee, voted for impeachment of Donald Trump, is out with a new book, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. Congressman, thank you so much. Yeah, it was great being with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. And now the spiel. We have met the enemy, and it is bird names. The loon, the cuckoo, so stigmatizing. The blue-footed booby, the Caspian tit. The cinnamon-breasted tit, so ribald. The seahawk, the falcon, so vulnerable against the run. But actually, those aren't the names that are at issue. It turns out that the fowl have been peopled with people who befoul them. Here is NPR airing a story about a birder a few years ago who wondered if there might be any birds named after the worst of us. It turns out, yes, a bird had been named for a Confederate Army general, John Porter McCown. Driver thought it should be changed, so he put in a proposal to the American Ornithological Society. And so the bird named for John Porter McGown is no more. That bird named after the Confederate general quickly got officially renamed. It's now the thick-billed longspur. Get over here with that thick bill of yours, you bad bird. But if one bird can change, I can change, you can change, we can all change. And so the call warbled out from nest to loft. We could change all the birds named after problematic men. There's Stellar's Jay, Cooper's Hawk, Anna's Hummingbird, 
The Cooper is, of course, named after Anderson Cooper, who once did an interview with Kellyanne Conway, thus platforming her. By the way, the Cooper Hawk, Hawk, a little warlike, right? The Anna Hummingbird, named after Anna Paulina Luna, who's a MAGA member of the House. And the Stellar J, that connotes J. Robert Oppenheimer, very problematic for many of the peoples of Asia. So you could see that we have to rename all the... No, no, no. Those aren't the people for whom those birds are named for. To take one example, the Cooper in Cooper's Hawk was named after William Cooper, a conchologist, a shell collector, and one of the founders of the New York Lyceum of Natural History, which became the New York Academy of Sciences, and in fact, the first American member of the Zoological Society of London. Well, that sounds laudable to affix a bird with an honorific of this man who is very important in understanding bird kind. I mean, the only oppo research I could find on the Cooper hawk was not about Cooper, but the hawk. Respected ornithologist Arthur Cleveland Bent, in his 1937 work, Life Histories of North American Birds, referred to the Cooper's hawk as a, quote, feathered ferocity. And until the mid-20th century, Cooper's hawks were hunted as vermin. Now they're hunted because they were named for colonizers or for white men, or in some cases for literal racists. These are the arguments of bird names for birds. That is the group that spearheaded the campaign to take people names off of winged fauna. At the 2021 meeting of the American Ornithological Society, their community congress on English bird names, the co-founder of Bird Names for Bird, Jordan Rutter, made her case. So Bird Names for Birds is a grassroots initiative advocating for the removal of anonymous common bird names and a review of the nomenclatural system to aid in decolonizing birding and ornithology and make it more welcoming and inclusive. Christian Cooper's experience in Central Park brought social justice issues to the forefront of the birding community, not because it was a new issue, but because it was one we could no longer ignore or not react to. Of the 20 or so people in the meeting, from authors of field guides to academics to activists, all were in agreement. Bird names must change. The only real question was how far. So while I have made reference to a few birds named after accomplished scientists, there are some named after bad dudes. And also, as noted in the Daily Beast, which of course is well positioned to cover such an issue, quote, the American Ornithological Society says it wants to make science more inclusive, which includes ditching around 80 bird names that honor historical bigots. One example is Scott's Oriole, which was named for Winfield Scott, a military commander who had some heavy influence over the Trail of Terrors, by which I think the author means the Trail of Tears. I said to myself, oh, they're calling the Trail of Tears the Trail of Terrors now. No, they're not. This is the only reference I saw calling it that. Anyway, as far as Winfield Scott, it is true he accepted his orders to fight and remove natives. It is also true that Winfield Scott won the Mexican-American War, which itself might not have been a wise or noble undertaking by civilian leadership, but it's certainly better to have won the war than lost the war. Scott opposed slavery, which cost him votes as the Whig nominee for president. But in a way, Scott being on the right side of some issues and the wrong side of some issues, as judged 170 years after the fact, exemplifies a key choice the bird renamers made. Go all or nothing. Rename every single American bird, North American bird, named after a person. As another 
member of Bird Names for Birds, Alex Holt, argued. Probably a sort of rip off the Band-Aid scenario. Like the less, it's it's going to be a major traumatic change to like how people interact with birds, like however you do it. And my gut reaction is that if you get it over and done with, you can get on with sort of what comes next. Um, I mean, I do think there are like cases where it's more complex. Um, I mean, there was in the sort of other questions, it was mentioned sort of what do we do with birds named American something, given it was named after Imerigo Vespucci with his own problematic history. Holt conceded that was a fight for another day, but one that he seems eager to take part in. Today, North American birds have shed the plumage of their past associations. They've plucked the eponyms from Adelaide's warbler to Zantu's hummingbirds. None dare snipe, specifically Wilson's snipe, if this move will be a Salvin's albatross or any other kind of albatross around the neck of future birders who have to learn and relearn every wren and every warbler. Too bad they just have to swallow it. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thanks for listening. I learn about the queer community through birds, and I'm...